Welcome to our podcast, Doing It Right. This podcast reveals authentic stories from successful leaders doing it right. It's about their journey to become a leader, their choices, motivations, and lessons. In essence, how they built successful personal brands. Your host is Valerie Sokolowski, author of eight leadership books and nationally known as an authority on executive presence and personal branding. Let's get started. Here's Valerie. Hi, and welcome to our show today. I'm so excited to tell you that we have just hit Apple's top 25 business podcasts. That's awesome, and it's all because of you and because of fantastic guests like we're going to have on the show today. And before we start, I want to just say thank you so much for the uh, beautiful top that I'm wearing from Betty Ryder's Boutique, and this is in the plaza at Preston Center in Dallas. The owner is a French woman who just has that keen eye for unique pieces. So go through the red door, that's the color of her door when you go through it, and you'll see the awesomeness when you go there. Now let me tell you about the show today. My guest today is Doug Box, and his dad was Cloyce Box. Now, you probably, if you were <clears throat> a little bit older, might have remembered, and even not, he's famous. Cloyce Box was an F NFL football star in the 50s. Now, there's lots of history about him, his career catching touchdown passes for the Detroit Lions, his rise to wealth from a poor, dirt-poor kid on a farm, abandoned at 12 by his father, if you can believe that, and then to many lawsuits and challenges in many of his businesses. <laughs> Doug is laughing already. Now, after his football career, everything he, he did turned to gold. It was amazing. He became a multimillionaire, and his family, of course, was blessed with all of the things that he was able to give them. At one point, Cloyce Box bought a ranch with a 14,000-foot sprawling home for his family, and you may have heard of it, because his ranch was then later called the South Fork Ranch, made famous by the television series Dallas, known all over the world. Some even say that Cloyce's character was written into the attributes of J.R. Ewing. So my guest today, the youngest of four sons, living on the Box Ranch was such a lavish experience as we can all imagine, including the bragging rights for having the show's first several segments done at that ranch. But the experience would later really downturn in many, many big ways. Misfortune happened, and with that experience, Doug Box is now helping families by telling his cautionary story about why it's important to think hard and smart about presenting family wealth. I want to welcome you, and I wish we had two hours. <laughs> Thank Doug, you, Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you, Valerie. Great to be on the show. What in the world was it like to be born in such a wealthy family and all the lavish things you were afforded? Just what was that like for those of us who didn't have that opportunity? Well, you know, we really didn't think of ourselves as a wealthy family. Hmm. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with my mother because she kept us all very grounded 
in who we were. She was a church-going woman, and uh, we kept ourselves busy with school, and uh, we went to competitive schools and were athletes, and so we didn't think too much about uh, my dad's world. It was, it was Our family was sort of like um, there was my dad, and he was this larger-than-life sort of rock star uh, businessman, and then the rest of us were sort of ordinary in comparison to him. And that's because my mother was a very, she was very intent on keeping us that way. Yeah, for sure. But there's no question, my father, Kloisbox, was a remarkable man in, in so many ways, and that's why I wrote a couple of books about him. Well, we're going to talk about this book, which is called Texas Patriarch, A Legacy Lost. And I have to tell you that when he gave me this book, I couldn't put it down. It's conversational. It's the story that we'll share a little bit about today. But the story is like, there needs to be a movie on this, Doug, don't you think? Tell us about the story. Start anywhere you want. Well, this is really a, a typical sort of rise and fall story mm-hmm. where my, a guy like my, my father grows up in poverty with literally nothing and he works his way off the dirt uh, poor farm because he's a great athlete and he joins the marines during the korean war and professional football allowed him to meet captains of industry and so he climbs the corporate ladder and he's sort of like a texas version of forrest gump he can do no wrong everything he touches turns to gold and then um towards the end of his life unfortunately he overreached Um, some late in life deals that he obviously shouldn't have done but Mm -hmm. he he was a deal maker at heart he did those deals he overreached he overextended the family's balance sheet and then he died very unexpectedly at the age of 70 years old he went to sleep one night um, after piloting piloting his own plane to Durham North Carolina and uh, dies in his sleep and I'm the youngest of four sons and um, the four brothers were uh, very good friends very compatible all of our lives but when we started working together in this business suddenly we found ourselves confronted with a lot of problems that we didn't know how to solve Mm. and so one thing led to another it was all caused by a lack of succession planning and so that's what I try to do today for families is to make sure they have a succession plan Mm. and they have some governance uh, family business governance around that which is a fancy word for saying have some sort of board or family council or team of advisors to help them get through these difficult transitions. So we just couldn't make it through those transitions and we ended up in court lawyering up, suing each other. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm not saying it was their fault, but I was sued by two of my older brothers in trying to settle my father's estate those were devastating experiences for for everybody Hmm. and so those uh those experiences were significant enough to change my life and they it made me want to do what i do today which is help family avoid families avoid these kind of problems Mm. you found your calling i suppose you'd call it a calling wouldn't you yes i would because you got your degrees in I, uh, we were talking about this before the show started. I was uh, um, kidding um, you and your friends here at Real News that I was originally a radio, television, film major at UT Austin. And that's, that was the business I always wanted to work in, but my father had other ideas. But, so yeah, I'm very comfortable here in this realm. 
So I'm finally using my degree. I'm kind of watching because I think he's watching me. No. <laughs> if I make a mistake, he'll, he'll, I'll never forgive myself. I want to go back, though, uh, Doug, to your childhood because the brothers were close in age. And tell us a little bit about what each of them were like and where you fit in with their activities and with the dad and what was it like? Well, my, my four brothers were an interesting group of guys because they were all very unique in their own way. Uh, my oldest brother was really smart. I went to St. Mark's here in Dallas, went to Penn in Philadelphia, got an MBA back in an era when MBAs weren't that common in the 70s. Uh, my next uh, oldest brother didn't like school. He was kind of a shade tree mechanic, so he hung out at the ranch a lot. Mm-hmm. So my my two oldest brothers could have been more opposite. My uh, next to youngest brother was the golden child of the family. Uh, and a very capable, very smart guy in his own right, uh, Baylor uh, University, master's in economics, uh, Baylor Law School, passed the Texas bar exam. And then there was me, I was sort of the uh, frustrated artist who always wanted to crawl out from underneath the family's uh, shadow of my father and kind of be my own person and do my own thing. But um, I also had a a strong need to, you know, win my father's approval at the same time. Mm -hmm. So when he beckoned me to come work for him, ultimately he prevailed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the book says that you did not cross your dad. In fact, it talks a lot about, you're really humble, (laughs) Doug. I'm I'm gonna force you to talk about something I think is so fascinating, which is to have a father that's that successful and that strong. Mm. Um, You shared a story about what it was like in the airplane with him flying. And this is a typical story, I think, probably, of the character, your dad. Mm -hmm. So tell us what happened and how that impacted you. Well, my dad was quite a pilot. He, uh, he flew airplanes all of his life, and uh, I was scared to death uh, flying with him. And the reason why I was scared to fly with my dad is because I had a cousin who was also a pilot, and he was going through you know, ground school and everything, and, and he knew enough about flying to know that my dad didn't always follow the rules. The rules in the sky. The rules in the sky. Oh, boy. Right? And he said, you know, your dad's flying really bothers me. And I'm like, why is that? And he says, because he doesn't follow the rules worth a darn. And so, you know, then I'm up in the air at 15,000 feet, you know, watching my dad nervously. And um, I, that's how I began the book. You know, the prologue is this uh, story about flying the. Rio Dosa Downs, New Mexico. My dad was a big quarter horse racing fanatic, a real fanatic, and we we were always flying off to uh, the the racetrack to um, be at Oaklawn and Hot Springs or Rio Dosa Downs in in Rio Dosa, New Mexico. This was before they had legalized uh, betting, and, and they didn't have a horse track here in Dallas mm-hmm. out at Grand Prairie. So he'd have to fly everywhere to go see his horses: California, New York, you name it. And he'd always want me to go with him. And I did go with him a lot, but it was scary being in that cockpit with my dad. But he was an excellent pilot. He was just one of these guys that liked to cut corners. And so I use that metaphorically as far as his business career. He also cut corners in business a little bit. And he cut corners in flying a little bit. So it was kind of a 
going back to your very first question, it was kind of a scary childhood in a way because you, my dad was unpredictable. You never knew what he was going to do. But he was also he was unpredictable in a brilliant way. He was, he was mm-hmm. brilliantly unpredictable. It no. made him hard to uh, negotiate with, too. Well, hard to negotiate with. So you go off to college. Yeah. In the meantime, your brothers had already, you, you were the youngest. Mm-hmm. Was there really any choice not to be in the family business? Great question, and I'd answer that no. Um, well, yes and no. If I had bucked the system, if I had bucked my father for a long time, I probably would have been cut off or excommunicated from the family because I just know. Really? Well, not in a not in a serious, you know, official way, but I knew I would have to go through a period of time where he'd be very unhappy with me. And and it might go on for a long time and I just didn't have the the metal to uh to put up with that. And I I have a I guess I have a high need to, you know, please people. I always try to make people happy whatever I do and so that it, I certainly wanted to you know do the same with my father you know a man like that you're always trying to please because he was my father you know and uh, we all want our parents approval or at least I did I didn't when I was a teenager so much but after you know in my 20s that was more important to me because he was such a great man in so many ways but uh, but it I wished I had been able to just follow my dreams of just you know, going off and pursuing my own interest mm-hmm. apart from the family. I really regret that. And I think I write about that pretty openly in the book. Mm-hmm. I should have, would have, could have done that. I wished I had. Well, you said in the book, though, Doug, that you that was your full intention, and you told your father. I tried to. <laughs> and how did, did that go down? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, didn't go down well. Um, Cloyce Box wasn't the kind of man that you should cross and um, he was he was just hard he was a contentious man and he was you know I was really afraid of uh, you know, upsetting him I guess mm-hmm. and I guess too afraid of that so men like my father have a way of getting their way so <laughs> he got his way he got his way so now the the um, the brothers all four of you are in the business and tell us about when you were all in the business, what roles were you playing? Well, that's just, that's just the thing because we like to think that we all were running the business that, however, was not really true. Mm. Our dad was running the business and we just worked for our father. And so he was such a strong presence in so many ways that it was difficult for any of us to ever really get game time experience mm. because, um, you know, sometimes if the founder doesn't step down eventually, I mean, he never retired. Uh, he was still working when he was age 70, you know, which is kind of old for men these days to be working. And um, if he'd retired a little sooner, then the four brothers would have had to step up a lot more. Uh-huh. But emotionally, because he's still around and he's still very much running the, the show, uh, it was very easy for us to sort of remain more like children, even though we were well into our 30s. And my older brothers were in their early 40s. And so they can't really step up until the founder steps down. Because when you have such a strong 
presence around a guy like my father, um, everyone just listens to him. So once he dies very unexpectedly, none of us really have the grooming or the leadership development to take it on. Now, I, I did have one brother who actually was very strong and actually was, was really pretty ready. But the tragedy there is that his three brothers, and I was one of them, were, didn't see how we could all work together, didn't see how this was all going to work out. And so um, one thing led to another, like I said, and, and things just kept going downhill. So, Doug, how did, um, how did the turmoil that ensued with lawsuits and ups and downs and how many businesses he was in, mm -hmm. which were what? Oil and gas, mm -hmm. Gulf of Mexico, offshore uh, exploration and production, and we had a cement manufacturing company here locally in Midlothian. Okay. Yeah, big, two pretty big businesses. I mean, both of those businesses were, uh, our oil and gas company was publicly traded. And it had a market cap of about 200 million. Mm -hmm. And this is going back 20 plus years ago. So that's a pretty big enterprise, small by oil company standards, mm -hmm. but still 200 million is 200 million. <laughs> and then our, our cement business was about mm, a 200, I'm sorry, a $300 million business. Our cement business was a massive uh, production facility that's, that still exists and still operates in Midlothian, Texas, that my dad built. So you, he was in all kinds of different industries and very successful. So my question is, um, how did what you went through affect you and the family? Well, it affected me because I saw things that uh, I saw where we could not be helped by our existing set of advisors. Our advisors were not versed in this thing that I call family wealth enterprise. Because you see, there's a difference when a business is run by a family rather than run by so-called professional management mm -hmm. in that the family dynamic changes everything because the family is held together by common bonds of emotion and love. Whereas in the corporate world, it's not that way. No. It's supposedly a rational decision-making model, whereas a family enterprise can be very much an emotional-based model. Sure. Um, nepotism is, runs rampant in family companies. That's the nature of the beast. Whereas in the corporate world, that's the exact opposite. The first mm -hmm. thing they tell you is, well, you can work here, but you can't hire your brother-in-law. Mm -hmm. That sort of thing. So family enterprise just takes everything and kind of turns it on its head. Mm -hmm. And the people that we were seeking advice from back then had no expertise in that area. They had no ability. In fact, many of them, many of our advisors made it worse. Were they, what kind of advisors Lawyers. Were they? Okay. Sorry to say, and I, and I have many lawyer friends out there. I hope I'm not hurting anybody's feelings. No. And I'm still very good friends with all of them. But uh, it's just a simple matter that, you know, 20 plus years ago, the field of family enterprise planning was not as well developed as it is today. Hmm. We've come a long way, baby, as they say. And, and with the growth of these family offices and the growth of private family wealth, the advisors have grown 
these organizations that are in the business of advising successful families, they their business models have grown. They've ramped up in terms of staff. You know, they've they're hiring leadership coaches. They're hiring shrinks. They're hiring people that are very process oriented mm-hmm. to deal with this stuff. Whereas 20, 30, 20 or thirty years ago, no one cared about this stuff. The only thing twenty or thirty years ago, the big advisory firms cared about were the were big corporate America, AT and T, American Airlines, TI. Mm-hmm. Now there's been so much growth in family office and private family wealth. These companies today are scrambling to meet the needs. So that begs the question of wealthy families like yours, what percentage of them do it right? Another great question. Uh, if you believe these statistics, and, there, and you know statistics are tricky, but there is a famous stat out there that says that two out of three family-based enterprises fail after the founder's retirement or passing. So that's a really wow. high, that's higher than the divorce rate. That's 67% from generation one to generation two will not succeed. From generation two to the third generation or from the, to down to the grandkids, the odds are like 10%. 90% of all family-owned companies will fail. That, that doesn't mean that any one particular family-based company faces those odds because statistics can be tricky. But the point is that this is an area that it's well known that uh, the failure rate is extremely high. So uh, people like me were invented to try and mitigate the odds of failure. And uh, we do that through planning and having this funny thing called governance. And governance mm-hmm. is essentially the, the best way I can describe what family governance is. It's a way for families to make decisions collectively. Whereas that's when easy. You, yeah, that's, that's simpler, mm-hmm. isn't it? Whereas you think of the founder uh-huh. as sort of a soloist. He's, he or she is usually the government himself or herself (laughs) and then when that person goes away uh, if they don't have some structures if they don't have some policies or rules of engagement or they don't have a strong council in place or a board to help them ease that transition they will often devolve into conflict Mm -hmm. so it's um, it's important I think for families to embrace the notion of advanced planning, it's, it's, it's not just as state planning. No. This is not just legal documents. Because mm-hmm. legal documents are great, they're essential, but they can only take you so far. Mm-hmm. What I'm talking about here, when I talk about succession planning, I'm talking about the human element, the human relationships. Okay. What does that look like? That's different for every family. Mm-hmm. Every family is very unique. There's no way to have a cookie cutter succession plan for this thing. Uh, that's why I go in there and I have to learn about these complex organisms that family companies are. And then you have to go to the inside of this organization. You have to build this structure from the inside out. You have to build it from mm-hmm. the inside out and you have to get the people that you want to support it, help build it. Because if they don't help build it, then mm-hmm. they won't support it. You can't just come in and say, okay, here's your 
governance this is what you're no <laughs> that's gonna they're gonna resist that so that's um and the time that we have it's that's as about as succinctly as i can put it how we how we try to do this there was, but there's a lot to it i'm sure there's a lot to it but what's so interesting to me is that you lived this mm-hmm. um and i want to ask you one more question if you don't mind about living that so when the castle started to crumble mm. I like that metaphor. <laughs> you can write that down. That's your okay. next book. <laughs> All right. When the castle started to crumble and the brothers, all of you were in the business, what happened then and how is it today with you mm. brothers? Mm. Well, I'll start with the latter half of your question. Um, this has had a devastating effect on the cohesion of my family. It's sort of rendered my family uh, into, I mean, we still have a family dynamic, but it's sort of a hollow shell compared to what it used to be. Holidays, birthday celebrations, and things like that are pretty rare in my family, not because we're actively uh, upset or in conflict now, it's just that when this thing happened you see when we lost the business the business was sort of the glue that held us together and that's what a lot of families don't realize is that they're really a business family first but if the business goes away part of that family is going to go away with it because the business is a is more of a foundation of that family than they realize the glue it's the glue Mm -hmm. yeah so today things are pretty um I would say pretty distant and uh, the way they were you know way back then when all this was actively going on Mm -hmm. things were much more um, we were we were locked in battle Mm. over conflict and and I made it worse and and I as I write about in the book I take the responsibility for sort of you know, lighting the match that, that, hmm. that brought down the house of box because um, I made a lot of mistakes and I write pretty openly about that in the book. And, you did. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book was to sort of for this sense of absolution mm-hmm. that I was seeking with, uh, you know, people ask me, well, was this a catharsis? No, not really. Why not? Well, because writing is too hard to be cathartic. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> writing is just too much work to be a catharsis. But it was, um, the book's been great. Uh, it's helped me a lot with my business. And I, sh- I go around the country sharing the story. Um, people like the story because it's one of conflict. And, mm-hmm. and when was the last time you saw a movie that, you know, a bunch of people weren't in conflict about something? So it, it it makes for a good story when I'm telling it to an audience because it's a true story and I was a real participant in it. So, yeah. So interesting. There should be a movie on that story just like there was a movie on Dallas right in your backyard. Doug, it's fascinating and I'm delighted that you, um, whatever you want to call it, the reason you are now doing what you're doing because you literally were so involved in the business, you were uh, successful in the business you 
got your degrees in radio and television and business, of course, and you really took a switch. You tweaked your whole life because of this experience in a good way. And so now you're able to, uh, my words, I guess, you're able to really, truly, been there, done it, help other people make sure they're not making the mistakes or at least thinking of what maybe I should have a conversation with my family and let them know hey Johnny you are rich and let me tell you what that is and what that isn't so thank you for that great information and I want to tell everyone that this book is available of course on Amazon.com and Barnes and Noble and Barnes and Noble still in Barnes and Noble yes that's great Mm -hmm. so it's a bestseller and I mean it. I couldn't put it down. Well, thank you. Valerie. I mean, it really, it really is. So you've got I, a lot of books in you. Left. I worked really hard on it. I could I, tell. I, I thought it would take a year. It took four. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not all that bad. Not that bad. The main <laughs> thing is I got it done. You got it done. And I also uh, want to share how you can ask more questions of Doug if you want to know more about. Um, his work in helping families, you can go to DougDbox.com or learn a lot more about Doug and his business at www.douglasdbox.com. www. Your name, DouglasDbox.com. I did the same thing, Valerie at ValerieAndCompany.com, because it's really easy, right? I don't have to think about it. Sokolowski's not that easy. Sokolowski's not that easy. <laughs> I just stuck with Valerie. That's so super true. Thank you so much you're for so, being on this so show. Welcome. We're going to come back and think about this a lot as we uh, go forward, and I think you're up for a podcast yourself. We'll talk about that, Doug. In the meantime, I want to just say to my wonderful listeners, uh, and if you're interested in learning more from me about how you can have greater influence and impact in your career, just email me at Valerie at ValerieAndCompany.com and we'll chat. I'd love to talk to you about the different things that I've been involved in in the last years. (laughs) In the meantime, you just stay real Watch your brand and be authentic. We'll talk to you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. To receive Valerie's voice, free monthly leadership tips, and to learn more about her leadership programs and coaching, visit her website, ValerieAndCompany.com. Next week, we'll be here again to inspire, engage, and equip you with teachable points of view from successful leaders who have been doing it right. Until then, lead authentically.